Last week in Judges, who's excited? Who's excited to get rid of that creepy music in the background, right? I thought about whether or not to leave that there, but it's like, it's one of those, like, it's dark and sinister and just makes you a little eerie. And I'm like, that's exactly what the book of Judges should do. So I left it and it's in there. And it's the last time you ever had to just hear it just now. We're done. Um, The bad news is we got to get real, real dark before we get to the end of Judges. And I know I say that every week, but like, if you're someone who like looks at scripture and is like, like dark passages like this somehow like, or like something that interests you, you're going to have a really good day. Um, otherwise, you're probably not, right? This is the kind of stuff that like when middle schoolers, they're like, the Bible is a boring book, Vince. All right, let's, let's go to the book of Judges, right? The Bible is not a boring book. I either bring up that or I bring up my favorite passage in scripture, which is 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24, about the bald guy who gets made fun of, who then calls she-bears out of the woods to kill a bunch of children. Read it. 2 Kings, write it down. 2, 23, and 24. I preached my candidating sermon at Presbytery on that passage. And by the way, that sermon is the one that's in my back pocket. If there's ever a long, hard week that doesn't allow me to write a sermon, like something emergency-wise happens, that's the sermon you're going to get as like my backup. So someday you will hear about the bald guy. But for now, we are going to be finishing up in the book of Judges. And before we get there, I want to take a look at a passage in Romans 1, because I think it'll inform the way that we think about what happens at the end of this book, and really what happens in our own lives if we're not careful. And so this morning, let's take a quick look at Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about everybody in the world can know what right or wrong is because God has given everyone a sense of right or wrong. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> this is Paul's, in some way, after like the greetings and salutations, this is Paul's opening to the book of Romans. This is the letter he sent to the church of Rome. Picture getting this letter, and it's like, hey, um, greetings from Paul. Um, hope you're all well. Um, so yeah, so the unrighteousness of God is revealed against all of you. And then he just goes on this thing. That's the, like, the letter you get from the Apostle Paul. It's a sobering letter. But what, what we have here is an indictment of all people. And he's saying that those who know God and those who don't are without excuse because in the world that we live in, there's this thing called common grace. That even those who don't follow God, they experience a certain level of life. And they understand morality. They understand inherently what's right or wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to know that it's wrong to kill somebody, right? Hopefully. If if you disagree, counseling pastorally would be a a thing that you should seek, right? 
But we don't have to be a Christian to know that because there is some level of common grace. The law of God, the ways of the Lord are somehow evident in nature. We can see what right and wrong is. We all have this innate sense of it. And people that aren't followers of Christ don't know this, but it comes from him. We were created that way by our creator. And so there's no excuse. And instead, what Paul is describing has happened is that we have, over time, the people have turned away from the Lord and they have started to worship the created stuff rather than the creator. What Paul is describing in Romans here is idolatry. And today, when we look at the book of Judges in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to look at an example of extreme idolatry. And so the first thing we have to understand is what is idolatry? Idolatry is anything that we create, whether we make it or it already exists, choose to attach ourselves to, worship, value, prioritize over God himself. So in scripture, you see like they will make this golden calf or they'll erect some kind of idol shrine or statue. It's the same thing that we do today when we, for instance, start to worship our money or love of it more than God himself. Right? So anything can be an idol. And anything we put in his place is idolatrous. One commentator that I read said this, instead of being an expression of thanks to God and humble submission to him, idolatry nearly always becomes a means of trying to manipulate him to either ward off evil or get what we want from him. And certainly if we looked in the book of Judges over the last five weeks, this being the sixth, we have seen exactly that play out. The people of God and Judges are idolatrous. They worship him only insofar as they can get from him something. Right? They need saving or they need stuff. Today we're going to look at a guy who needed stuff, not saving. Right? At least not from man-made troubles. Everyone needs saving. Right? And so when we look back at idolatry, we can see that, for instance, John Calvin tells us that our hearts are factories of idols. Because of the sin in our life, our basic disposition, our natural inclination, is to manufacture these idols in our hearts. To start to look for things to worship instead of him. Some of us worship security. Some of us worship money, like I said. Some of us worship our vanity, and we care about how we look, and that's everything to us. Some of us worship the God-given talents that we've been given, and we make them about us. Right? How, instead of saying, how can we use this way that God has gifted me to worship him, we instead say, how can I use this to make myself look grander and better so that people will worship me? Right? That's what idolatry is. And so we see it in scripture as this like statue worship most times. And we think, well, that's back then. We don't really do that anymore. But we commit idolatry just as much as the people of the biblical times did. It just looks, in a lot of ways, different. And in some parts of the world, yes, there literally is idolatry. There literally are statues erected, and literally they are worshipped, right? And so we have to have that, that basic understanding before we ever get into this. And so as we move to the end of Judges, there's a radical shift. I have good news. I will not bring back the Judges cycle today. You don't have to read it one more time. I'm sure you're tired of it. But the reason I'm not bringing it back is because there is no more Judges cycle. We have five chapters left in the book of Judges, right? Chapters 3 through 16 have been about the continuous cycle of the judges, each time a new one. And now what we have is the judges are done. There is no deliverer. None. The people are on their own. 
and they are left to fend for themselves. There's also really no attacker, so to say, at least not in, in a sense of like Israel being under attack. Right? And so there's a time of relative peace for the people of God. There's no outside force that's coming in that's giving them strife or trouble. They're just left to live their lives. And as we'll see, it just goes downhill. I just heard myself talk. Interesting. I sound weird. Wow. That's what you have to listen to every day? I'm so sorry. All right. And so what we have is chapters 17 and 18 are one story, and chapters 19, 20, and 21 are another story. And they split themselves beautifully because the first story or illustration is a, not illustration, the first account that actually happened, is a, a, a downfall of Israel in a spiritual or religious sense. And the second account is a downfall in the moral sense. And so what we see in the last few chapters of Judges when there's no ruler, right, is first the spiritual practice and religion goes completely to shreds. And inevitably, after that, the morality of the people completely sinks down. And that in itself, before we ever open the text, is a lesson to us. Because what we need to understand is when faith goes, so does morality. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point. Because our moral compass comes from within our faith. If God is not real, if it's all just made up stuff, then all of our morality is silly. There is no reason to act good in this world. Because there's no purpose in this world. We just are born and then we die. So why not get whatever we can while we're alive, right? Morality is a part of our spiritual life. That's why we see morality in the world slip as faith becomes less and less prevalent. If you look through history and the cycles where faith starts to decrease, immorality starts to go up. It's just the natural way that things are. And so this morning we will look at both of these accounts. The first one will spend a lot of time in scripture. The second one, not so much, and I'll, I'll explain why when we get there. So let's, let's read through kind of verse by verse and we'll, we'll get through this. Judges 17, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to a silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Okay, totally random guy, never heard of him before. Micah's just a dude. And so what these stories are doing before we move on is they're zeroing in on one group of people each time, right? They're totally random people, and the idea of this is this could be anybody. This is kind of the, the norm of what has been happening in the, the life of the people of Judges, right? When we look at the cycles, we're looking at, like, the leadership, the failure of leaders, the failure of armies, the failure of the powers that be, and you ask yourself, well, what if, were all the people really that bad? Maybe we just had bad leaders, right? We think that today, right? If the politicians would just get their act together, everything would be great. Because we, we know what, what we would do. If, if I was president, I would do it. 
right? The reality is that the people themselves are corrupted. And these stories are meant to illustrate that, right? Micah could be anyone. He's, he's a plucked out of the crowd of Israel's people as an illustration of just how far the people as a whole have fallen. And so understand that. So Micah steals from his mom 1,100 pieces of silver, and she curses the thief in the, in the name of the Lord. And so Micah's terrified, and he comes to her and he says, Hey, um, you're, I got your silver back. Um, I took it. Now, if you're a mom and your kid steals $1,100 from you, and you say, cursed is the one who stole it. And he comes to you and he's like, I took it. What would be your response? <laughs> Probably not super excited, right? Punishment, grounding for life, loss of cell phone. You know, maybe a paddling. I don't know. I'm kidding. Um, right? She reacts a little differently. She blesses her son. And then she takes 200 of that and has a silversmith create an image to honor her son for having somehow returned the thing that he stole in the first place. And then Micah goes and he creates some more gods and he makes a shrine in their household. And then he makes his son, who is not a Levite, who shouldn't be a priest, he randomly makes his son a priest in the house. Like in his private house. Right? The opening of this makes zero sense. Like, I tried to find, like, what's the, what's the point here? Is there anything happening that I don't understand? Is there some practice that I'm not aware of? And the reality is, for an Israelite family, this is just complete bogus. Like, nothing that is happening here makes sense. This is the thing that if it was a movie, you would watch it and go, what? And you ask yourself, why on earth is this happening? And verse 6 gives us the answer. And you will see this phrase repeated a whole bunch. Earlier in Judges, and especially now towards the end. Six, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, no judge, no authority, no structure or anything. So people just did as they saw fit. And this is an example of it. None of it makes sense because it's not supposed to. Guess what? Micah's truth is his truth. And the Israelites' truth is their truth. Right? Because you can have your truth, but I can have my truth. And somehow they're both equally true. Do you see how it kind of relates to the world that we live in today? Everybody just does whatever's right in their own eyes. There's no common, like, this is right or this is wrong. And so when that happens in a culture, we descend into chaos and anarchy. And so you have an Israelite family living in an Israelite area, acting in no way the way that Israelites would act. Let's keep going. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. He should be a priest. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to sojourn where I might find a place. That means find work. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Now on the surface, this looks kind of okay. 
right? The Levites are supposed to be the priest. If you remember, the tribe of Levi was set aside in the time Aaron was the first priest, and it was supposed to be that that was a family of priests. The tribe of Levi didn't have a specific place where they dwelled when the Lord got them into the land. They were supposed to go and be everywhere and be the priests of the various tribes. And so you'd have some Levites who were assigned to be you know, priests in the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. Right? That's how it worked. And so this story is kind of good. Here's a Levite. He should be priest. Let's make him priest in the house. It's in the right direction. But there's a whole bunch of things wrong with this passage. Number one, Levites, as I said, were assigned to places. And they were supported by a tithe. There was a specific tithe that was set to be able to support the work of the Levites, the pastors, so to say, right? The priests were taken care of by that tithe. Why is he looking for work? Like, Levites weren't on Indeed.com. Like, they were told where to go. They were assigned to a place. If they didn't have work, well, then they would be sent somewhere that there was work, specifically with a task and an assignment. That's not how it worked. Why is he looking for work? Second, he's coming from Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not a Levitical city. Why on earth is a Levite coming from there? He shouldn't have been there in the first place. That's very strange. Second, he accepts Micah's offer for a private family priesthood. That is not a thing. And he takes a lot of payment for it. By the way, I'm accepting applications for private pastorship of your homes. If you, if you would like, uh, it's $2,000 an hour. And you have to feed me and my whole family and watch my children. While I priest to you somehow, right? That's what he's doing. And so he accepts this, which tells me one of two things. Either A, this Levite has no idea how the priesthood is supposed to work. Like, the society has fallen so much that the Levite priests don't even know what it means to be a Levite priest. So either he doesn't know, or he knows and he doesn't care. Either way, terrible. Right? And then finally, Micah is clearly aware that Levites are supposed to be priests, and only Levites are supposed to be priests, so why on earth did he ordain his son? Who, by the way, now is nowhere to be mentioned anymore, right? He was like, I need a priest. Son, you be it. And then the Levite comes and he's like, I don't need you anymore. Go sit. I got the better one now, right? None of this makes sense. Nothing is made better here. All Micah has done is now dragged a random Levite into his mess and into his idolatry. And the kind of priesting that is happening is not of the Lord, right? Because they're worshiping this erected statue, of metal and silver. What on earth? Right? Verse 13 is what gets to the heart of it. Because he says, now that I have done this, I have this Levite priest in my house now. No one else has a Levite priest in their house. Right? Now the Lord will prosper me. That's what Micah's after. Micah's not trying to seek after the Lord. Micah wants genie Jesus. Micah wants the Lord to better his situation Right? He invokes God's name like some cosmic genie to just get what he wants. And, and you see it because he goes, now that I have a real Levite in my house, surely the Lord will prosper me. It can only go up from here. Right? It's a status symbol to him. Right? Like that super sweet sports car that you buy. That's what it is. That's all it is to Micah. And by the way, it's not sinful to buy a sports car. It might be, depending on where your heart is when you're doing it. But you can own a sports car. That's not a, don't hear me, oh, I have, a, I have this car, you know, should I sell it? No, it's fine. Unless you want to sell it to me for a dollar. Right. I'm really into this private priesthood thing. It sounded really good. Right. And so at the end of this, we just have this priest that's not really a priest doing these things that are not really priestly with this family that is in no way seeking after the Lord. 
then things go downhill as if they hadn't already, right? <clears throat> so now the Lord doesn't prosper Micah. Instead, he decimates him. He completely decimates him. And we'll see how that happens here. In those days, there was no king in Israel, as we've already known. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. So the tribe of Dan, um, they, they're one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when everybody, they were sent into the promised land and told to possess it, we can go back and see in chapter 1 of Judges, they struggled to possess their land, right? Some tribes conquered their land well and settled in it. Wherever Dan was supposed to go, they struggled. They weren't able to conquer their land, and so they were kind of without a home. They were a tribe looking for a place to go, because where God said to go, they weren't faithful enough or for whatever, they just weren't able to conquer it. Later, they struggled with the Philistines to some degree, and they couldn't get land, and so they're looking for a place to call their home, right? And they send these five guys out to spy out some parts of land, and on their way to spy it out, they happen to stumble upon Micah's house. And so they're there, and, and when they get there, they interact with this priest, and they ask the priest to tell them whether or not they think he will be successful. Kind of inquire of the Lord and tell us if we're going to have success. And the priest, who has like no authority to do this at all, says, yes, you will. You'll be successful. Go and, go and do what you're going to do. Right? And so then they get to this land. The five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of their Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into our hand, into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So they get to this town called Laish, right? Just a random Canaanite town. And they, they are there, and they see it's beautiful. Like, this is like Wakanda, <laughs> right? They have found this beautiful space. If you don't know that reference, please go watch Black Panther. Great movie, right? They come, and it's flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful place, like, like it was supposed to be. And the people are a very peaceful people, and they're far from anyone that could help them. It's perfect. They're isolated. They're peaceful. They don't look like they have seen a fight a day in their lives. And their land is pretty awesome sauce. You know what? We should go and just take it. Right? We're bigger than them. We're stronger than them. It'll be the easiest spoil and plunder that we've ever done. Let's do it. And so they do. Right? So they march on the city of Laish. But first, they go back to Micah's house. And they take Micah's priest. Imagine being this priest. You're just doing your semi-priestly things in Micah's house. And those guys that were there a while ago, they come back. And they just say, we're taking you with us. Like a bag of something. <laughs> we're just going to pick you up. Oh, and all the idols and the statues and the, the silver, the metal, all that God stuff, the shrine. Yeah, pack that up. We're taking that too. And so Micah loses everything. They take it all. And then we continue. The people of Dan took what Micah had made, 
and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidian, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Reob, and when they rebuilt the city, they lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first, and the people of Dan set up the carved image. Like the whole city, men, women, children, they just annihilate them. They just wipe them out. And then they burn the city down, which always made me curious. Like, you have a beautiful built city. Why did you burn it down after you killed everybody? Why not just take it? And they rebuild it for themselves because they like extra work, apparently, and they're not that smart. And then they take the stuff that was in Micah's house, including the priest, and it becomes the worship of that whole tribe. And it tells us that that happens all the way up until the captivity, until we get to the exiles. Right? And so the priest that Micah had made priest, an idolatrous priest that wasn't after God, now becomes priest of Dan, and his ancestors after him become priests for about 450 or so years. And so this becomes the legacy of Micah. Right? His little act of idolatry ends up becoming the idol worship of an entire tribe of people because no one is doing the right thing anymore. Right? If you noticed, in that story, there's not a single point of redemption. No one is doing anything right. No one. Not the mom, not Micah, not the son, not the priest, not the Danites. There's not a single instance of, yeah, but there was a, like one person tried to have some, some good influence or change things for the better. Not, nothing. It's complete decimation of any spiritual practice. People are doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And that's how the account ends. It tells us that it was that way all the way up until the captivity, until they were exiled for the way that they acted and continued to worship in an idolatrous way. That's the end of the spiritual part. Now, the second part of this and the final three chapters of Judges probably, if not the, one of the darkest parts of the entirety of God's word. Okay? If you have a weak stomach, like you don't want to be spending time in Judges 19, 20, and 21. Um, and, and what I will tell you is, um, very sparingly, I, we're not going to get into the, the scripture itself, and here's why. Um, the account involves an unbelievable amount of what we would call um, assault-type sexual sin, right? And we'll, we'll recount kind of the summation of what happens because we should hear it, but, but if, if, you know, it's just, if you want to go home and read it, you should. You should read all of God's word. But, but if, if that perhaps is something that just affects you in a negative way, maybe don't read this one or, or read it with, with a spouse or a loved one. You know, together. Just a little disclaimer. So we're going to kind of walk through what happens because I think it's important because we need to understand just how far Israel has fallen. But I just want to give that disclaimer there. It's it's it is not a pretty thing. It's really really dark. So chapter 19 starts this way. It starts with a random Levite, a guy who's supposed to be a priest. 
This Levite takes for himself a concubine, like a semi-wife, essentially. Right? He doesn't want to marry her, but he wants her to be like there and do wifely things for him. Right? Read what you want into that. And so he has this concubine, and after some time, she leaves the Levite and goes back to her home, to her father. Right? We don't know why. We can speculate that maybe he was not a good guy, maybe he was abusive, maybe she just missed her home, we don't know. But nothing suggests that this Levite is a good man. Right? And so she leaves and she goes to her father, and after a certain amount of appropriate time, the Levite comes and, and sojourns to that father's house and, and tries to get her back. Um, and when he comes, the father welcomes him with open arms. And there's this whole section where the daughter is not mentioned whatsoever. All the interaction is between the man and the father as if she's some piece of property to be negotiated. And the father really wants her to go back to the Levite. So he, he gives him drink and food and tells him to be merry and tries to get him to stay. And the Levite says, you know, I got to go home. He says, no, 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 stay the night. And the next day they drink again and again. And so the father really butters up the Levite for like a whole bunch of verses, which makes no sense, right? Like if... if if you went home to your parents because your husband was not who he said he was, and you went home to try to have some refuge and protection, when that husband came, like, the parents wouldn't suck up to the husband, right? Like, that's really unhealthy behavior, morally, right? But that's what happens, and we're told at the very end, the Levite finally leaves, and the woman is with him again. And so somehow the woman is, he does get her back. Um, I don't get the sense that it was voluntary, right? And so he's got, her, he's got his property back, and they're traveling, and they get to the point where it's nightfall, and they're in a Canaanite area, and she, says, she suggests that they spend the night there before because it's not safe to travel at dark. And he says, no, I will not stay in a foreign land. We're going to travel till we get to a place that is Israelite territory. And they end up in a place called Jabiah. And in Jabiah, they finally settle down, and they're in the square just by themselves because no one will let them in. And finally, there's an old gentleman in the city who brings them into his house and says, you know, why don't you stay with me for the night? You know, you're part of, you're Israelites are Israelites. My, my house is your house. Come on in. And he te tells us that he gives them drink. And so they're in the house. They're comfor comfortable. They're spending the night to travel home the next day. And then there's a knock on the door. There's a whole bunch of men from the town who come to the door. And they demand, and here's where we think they're going to demand the woman. They demand the Levite. It says, they ask them to send out the Levites so that they may know him. These guys want to have relations with the Levite man. Right? Send him out to us because we want to have our way with him. The host replies to these people by saying, don't do this wicked thing. Like, we're better than that. These are guests. Take instead my virgin daughter and this guy's concubine. And so he offers the, the virgin daughter of his and the Levite's concubine to go instead outside. He's like, don't be mean. Don't do it to him. Take these people. They're, after all, they're just property anyway. Right? And then the Levite, when they hesitate, takes his concubine and essentially shoves her out the door and shuts the door. He just throws her to the wolves with no regard for any kind of human integrity or anything. And then we're told that, that, that the woman had struggled with those men for the entirety of the rest of the night. The next morning, it tells us that early morning, the Levite arose, which tells us that he slept really peacefully and soundly. And when he opened the door, 
His concubine was laying outside at the threshold of the door. This guy didn't even stay up to help after, after everything was over. That's how dark it got. And then this is where the story gets worse. Sorry. I know, they're going to be like, this guy, you elected him four months ago, and we're all just sad now. He picks his wife up, he puts her on the donkey, and he starts to go home. You know, picks her up, whatever's left of her and her dignity. And they go home, and it tells us that when they got home, he took her and he dismembered her into 12 pieces. And then he sent one piece to each of the tribes of Israel. So that the tribes received a piece of this woman. And of course, the Israelite tribes become furious and they contact the guy and they're like, what on earth is this? And he says, I wanted you to see and be aware. And then he makes up a whole bunch of lies about what really happened. Right? He looks really good in the story he tells. Well, I was there and I tried to stop them. But what happened is they just came and got her and I couldn't do anything and they killed her. And so then I did this so that you would see the grotesque nature of what the people in Jabia had done. And the story works. The Israelites get furious. They go to the Benjamites, which is where the, 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 the place of Jibia was, right? They were, it was a part of the Benjamite tribe. And they go to them and they demand these people to be brought out so that they can be killed in retribution for what they've done. The tribe of Benjamin refuses and it starts civil war, where you have the entirety of the Israelites all of a sudden go up and they decimate the tribe of Benjamin, like completely decimate them. And so now you have the full-fledged nature of Israel fighting itself. They are just annihilating themselves fully from within. Right? And when it's all done, it tells us that there are 600 men left that run. The entire tribe has been wiped out except for 600 men. And guess what? If you have a tribe of 600 men and no women, how long are you going to be alive as a tribe? Right? Basic biology, we need men and women to have children. Right? And so this tribe is on the verge of going extinct and the rest of Israel forbids any other tribe from having their women marry a Benjamite so that they would make sure they go extinct. Some time passes. Eventually there's pity on the Benjamite tribe. And what happens is the Israelites devise ways for the Benjamites to take Canaanite women forcefully from their tribes and take them as wives so that that tribe could live on. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the book of Judges. The last verse in all of Judges, after this all goes down, is 21-25. And it just says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eye. That's it. And you might ask, where's, where's the hope in that? And i got to tell you, there isn't. Maybe I lied to you. I said there'd be hope, right? It just ends there with this filth behavior that is inexcusable, that is so far downhill. Like, there are Canaanite people who would not have done what the Israelites, what some of them have done. And so there, there is really no godliness left among the people at this point. And the book just ends. There's no, well, but then the Lord intervened. It just ends. And I think it's important that we recognize that because we got to sit in it. It just ends. Sometimes we wonder, where is the Lord? What is he going to do? This place is going to hell fast. How is he going to intervene? When is he going to come into our country and our nation and our world and, and resurrect and revive things? When are we going to see a return to godliness? 
Well, in the case of judges, the answer is, yeah, well, whoops. But I did promise you hope. We just can't find it in the book of Judges. We have to go to the next book in Scripture. That's the book of Ruth. If you've never read the book of Ruth, it is probably one of the greatest reads. When I was in seminary um, for Hebrew exegesis, I had to translate a book of Scripture, and I chose the book of Ruth, uh, mainly because it's easy Hebrew. <laughs> it really is. Like, it's the easiest book if you're translating Hebrew to translate because it's insanely repetitive, right? I think something in the vicinity of like 65 to 70% of the words get repeated like 40 times. So like you translate one word, you have like 3% of Ruth translated. It's great. Okay. But the story of Ruth, if you don't know the story of Ruth, here's the opening of it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And he and his wife had two sons, and his two sons, sorry. The name of the man was El Elimelech. I always screw that name up. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right? Vince, can we get to the hope? <laughs> Just keeps getting worse. Oh. So we get there. Ruth is one of those Moabite wives. She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. Right? She's, she's not one of God's people. But one of God's people and his family travel to them. She marries into the family. And then the patriarch and the two husbands die. And it's these three widows by themselves. And if you follow the story of Ruth, what happens is Orpah ends up leaving them right, and staying but when Naomi says she's going to go back to her home country and try to fend for herself as a widow, Ruth faithfully remains by her side and goes back home with her. And the rest of the book is about the redemption of the family of Naomi and Ruth. They figure out there's a, there's a brother of one of the husbands. There's a brother named Boaz, and he is one of the family members. He's not like a brother, like... Right away, there's, there's lines that are in between. But he is of the same family. And so he ends up at the very end marrying Ruth. He takes her as a widow to be his. And he treats her with love and care and dignity and respect. And the book of Ruth has the happy ending that we want judges to have so desperately. And the key to this whole thing is the very first verse of the book of Ruth. Because what does it say? In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. The story of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges that we just spent six weeks dissecting. So here's what, here's what we need to understand. When everything in the world of God's people was completely going to shreds, when there was no trace of hope, nothing perceivable that is good left, Morality had been forsaken. Spiritual practice had been forsaken. God was an afterthought. In the midst of all of that, God was doing. God was doing something. In, in the lives of this random tiny family that has really not a whole lot of significance. right? And so here's what we know. When Boaz redeems Ruth, Ruth and Boaz have a kid. And that kid is named Obed. And Obed eventually has a kid named Jesse. 
and Jesse eventually has a kid. Anybody know the name? David. David is the one who then becomes king, a man after God's own heart. And David is also a man whose line of family eventually leads to the real king, Jesus. You want hope in Judges, here it is. And here's how it applies to our lives. When God seemingly is doing nothing. He's up to something. The Lord works in the thread of little people at various times. And sometimes he does it over the course of a whole bunch of, in case hundreds of years in the case of the judges' time frame. When God is seemingly doing nothing, when there's not a shred of evidence, he is on the move. Right? It looked like he wasn't there. It looked like he had forsaken his people. Really, he was carrying the line of Abraham all the way through Ruth and Boaz to Jesus. And they got their king. First David, the kind of king, and then Jesus Christ, the real king. Sometimes God seems like he is up to nothing. Sometimes in life there are years, decades, perhaps even generations where it seems like God's not doing anything, but God's timing works so far beyond our own that any time that seems to be the case, it is a falsehood and a lie. The Lord is on the move, amen? And when it seems like this country is going nowhere, and when it seems like no matter who we elect, nothing seems to change, we start to wonder, God, are you ever going to do something? Believe you me, he will. Maybe not in our lifetime, but he will. We operate so tightly on a human understanding of, of time and history and how things are supposed to be, work, be working, but the Lord's kingdom supersedes all of that. The Lord works through people over the course of centuries and generations, and he will accomplish his purpose. And in the meantime, he tells us that we have salvation in him. We serve a God who in the end will win. Does he have to do it in our lifetime? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Does it matter? No, because when our life is over, we spend eternity with him. It's the only hope I need. How about you? Right. So that's the book of Judges. It's sad. It's depressing. It has no hope. It has no good ending. And that's the point. Sometimes we go through life and it seems like there's no good ending. But there is. And it's coming. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that your understanding of, of time and of redemption is so far beyond what ours could ever be. Well, that so often when we feel like life is defeating and has no purpose or meaning or hardship comes our way, we throw in the towel and we shake our fists at the heaven and we say, God, where are you? But your reply is to us that you are at work. And so we praise you that you are a God who transcends our time and all time. That you don't look at this world through the lens of human eyes, but that you look at it through the lens of divine eyes. Always working, always planning, always coming to fulfill what you have promised us you will do. Because you are our king. Lord, we at times live as the people of the time of the judges lived, and for that we repent 
Lord, we, we come to your feet and we ask you for forgiveness for the ways in which we have forsaken you and not lived according to your word. You are not a God who is beyond throwing some hardship our way to remind us of who you are and who we ought to be in the midst of you. And so we pray that you would shape us and mold us, even if it might be painful, to be more and more like you. That we might resemble your kingdom, that when that time comes, that we get to stand before our maker and our creator, that we might be through your son and through your Holy Spirit worthy not on our own merit, but because of what you've done. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that in the midst of hopelessness, we have an ultimate hope. Thank you that as we seek to live in this world under hardship, that we know and can trust that in the end, nothing can touch us. Lord, we praise you for the cross and the resurrection that makes those things possible. Be with us this day as we go out to live that gospel truth in the world in which we find ourselves. We love you and praise you. And all as people said, Amen.